0: I trust you still have your Bibles open to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is where, where we'll be. Just to give you a little, uh, just a little insight into who we are as a church and what we, uh, what we regularly practice as a church. We regularly preach, uh, or the way that we preach is to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes for a few weeks now and we'll have a few more weeks to go. So, uh, since we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, it's very important, we believe, that you have a copy of God's Word open in your laps. Now, whether you brought a Bible with you or not, that's not an excuse or a reason. We have plenty of copies of these in the pew right in front of you. And as Ben said, we'll be on page 319. This is the version that I preach out of, uh, so you can follow along. follow along in that or follow along in whatever version you have. But if you take this out of the pew... Go ahead and take that home with you and consider it a gift from Parkview Baptist Church to you. By the way, we're not, uh, we're not opposed if you want to follow along on, uh, on an app or on your device or whatever. That's fine. We just want you to follow along in God's Word. The main reason that you follow along in God's Word, no matter who you're listening to, no matter who is bringing God's Word to you, is to make sure that they're really bringing God's Word to you, right? There are plenty of folks out there who will, uh, purport or who will proclaim Uh, something and say that they're proclaiming God's Word. The only way that we can know what God's Word is is if we see and if we look on our own. And we are blessed in this country that we have um, plenty of copies of God's Word freely available to us. So we always encourage you to do that. Uh, as Ben said, we'll be in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 16, and we'll work our way all the way through the end of chapter 3 and through the end of, uh, all the way through chapter 4. So I hope you didn't have any lunch plans. No, oh. uh, we won't be here, we won't be here that long. Well, <laughs> well, that's, that's the only lies the preachers are allowed to tell, isn't it? Uh, do you ever find yourself wondering, I mean, as we as we go through the experiences of life or as we watch the things that are going on around us, do you ever find yourself wondering how in the world did we get in this mess that we're in? You ever find yourself wondering what in the world is wrong with the world today? I, I don't think I'm the only one. You know, you, you see these different things and, and sometimes I just throw up my hands and I think, how, how did we get here? How are things so messed up in the world? Because things are really messed up, aren't they? And we don't have to look around very much. We don't have to spend very much, to invest very much time before we can see that things are really, really messed up. And and we like to think that we're smart people. Some of you are smarter than some of us. But we like to think that we're really smart people. So you would think that with... You know, all this so-called advancement and technology and smarts and education that we have, you'd think that we'd be able to figure out how to fix all this stuff that's wrong in the world. We, we, you would think that there'd be a solution in there somewhere, wouldn't you? But we're still really messed up, and it seems like we get more and more messed up every day, doesn't it? You know, that's the thing, those are the things that Solomon was wrestling with. As he wrote, especially, particularly this section that we're in this morning, really throughout the whole book, but particularly in this section this morning, he's, he's wrestling with those ideas of all the things that are so messed up in the world, and then he's come, trying to come up with his own solutions under the sun. And as we've talked about before, that's one of the real, very common phrases that you have to understand that Solomon's perspective is coming from throughout this book. Throughout this book, his whole perspective is how things look under the sun. In other words, just by opening our eyes and observing the world around us, and that's what he's doing. And under the sun, he's trying to come up with these solutions, but as you see he's doing that, you see this bitter frustration begin to leak out. That's easy to happen and that's easy if if we don't have to try very hard for that to happen do we? it's very easy to become bitter and I heard somebody say one time that bitterness is an acid that eats through the container, and Solomon realized that he realized that he couldn't just linger in the bitterness of the problems, so under the sun, he tried to come up with solutions. He tried to dig himself out of this bitterness that he kept running into under the sun. And that's the pattern that we'll see throughout this whole passage. Hopefully you'll notice as we go along. That's the that's the pattern, that, that there's this bitterness that's brought on by a particular problem in the world, and then it's followed by what Solomon came up with as a solution to try to dig his way out of the bitterness. But as we go along, we'll see how empty those solutions that he tried to come up with on his own really were. But thank God for the rest of the word, the rest of scripture that shows us a far better way. As a matter of fact, it shows us the best way, the best way out of all of those. Our best solutions are not found under the sun. Our best solutions are found in the sun. Amen. And that's what we'll see as we go along. The first problem that Solomon recognizes in our passage is, and the first problem that he comes across under the sun is injustice. Look at verses 16 through 21. Starting in verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. See where the bitterness is creeping in? For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down and into the earth. Injustice is a real problem in our world today, isn't it? But it's not just a problem in our world. It was a problem in Solomon's day, and he saw that there was all of this injustice that was going on, and we can open our eyes and we can see injustice going on throughout the world. If there wasn't injustice, then none of these politicians would have things to campaign about. But we see all of this injustice all around us, whether it's the disproportionate incarceration of minorities or the fact that it's almost impossible for poor people to get the same kind of legal representation that rich people get. Those are injustices under the sun. Now, When I say those things, it can be very easy to put things in a political box and think, well, is this a liberal rant or a conservative rant or some social justice warrior thing? No, it's not. It's you you open your eyes and you see things that are in, that are unjust. Criminals should be published, should be punished for their crimes, whether they're CEOs or whether they can't even spell CEO. But that's not always the case, is it? And it wasn't the case in Solomon's day. In Solomon's day, he was the one that was in charge, so he could do anything that he wanted. And there was still injustice. In verse 16, he said that wickedness often took the place of justice and righteousness. It's like I used to tell my kids when they were growing up, life is not fair, right? Life wasn't fair then, life isn't fair now. But look, as he observes that, look at the bitterness that he sinks into. He says that you know God is eventually going to judge the righteous and the wicked, which is true, right? God is eventually going to judge the righteous and the wicked. But he moves from that truth and he says that God is somehow using all of the injustices in life to show us that, hey, we're just no better than the animals. So he moves from a true statement Down into this pit of despair. He says, we're just no better than the animals. See, he moves from talking about a truth of the biblical God to talking about a truth that's only true about Darwin's God. And the truth that we're no better than the animals, that's not a biblical truth at all. Survival of the fittest, you know, it's a dog-eat world, dog-eat-dog world out there. Big dogs eat little dogs, and all dogs die in the end. Everybody dies, everybody ends up as worm food, and who knows if there's anything after that. That was the bitter conclusion that Solomon had come to. Bitterness and despair. And that's what he was seeing under the sun. And trust me, if you spend more than just a few minutes watching CNN or Fox or MSNBC or Judge Judy or any of those, you're going to end up in that same pit of despair that that's all there is. But Solomon realized that that bitterness, you can't stay there or it'll kill you. It'll eat you alive. So he tried to dig his way up out of that bitterness still only using the tools that he had under the sun. So he came up with this better thought. Look at verse 22. <clears throat> verse 22 says, So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his lot, in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? <laughs> okay, that's a better idea. You see what he's saying here? He's saying that because there's so much injustice in the world and it doesn't seem like we can do anything about it, the best solution that we have is just close our eyes to all the injustice in the world. Keep focused on your own little world. Just stay in your own little bubble. Just do your work and quit worrying about everything else. It's kind of like that, you know, that great philosopher Hank Williams said. Mind your own business. Because if you mind your business, then you won't be minding mine, right? That's the philosophy that he had come up with. Sorry, Hank, it wasn't original with you. He'd come up with this philosophy that just live in your bubble because you can't do anything outside your bubble. But is that what God calls us to do? Are we supposed to just close our eyes and ignore all the injustice in the world around us? Of course not. Of course not. what's, What's the best way? The best way is not to just mind our own business in our own little Christian bubble and ignore all the injustice in the world around us. The best way is to show the love of Jesus by loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's the best way. Give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Feed the hungry. Help the poor in Jesus' name. Provide families and homes and shelter for children in need. Give confused moms options. There are far better options than killing your own child. And do everything that we do in the name of Jesus because of who He is and because of His love. And do it as a way to proclaim His love and to proclaim His joy in the midst of an unjust world. Because in a world of injustice, Jesus is always just and faithful and true. He is the only one who is always just and faithful and true. And one day, He's going to return and He's going to make all things right. And for those who have trusted Him as Lord and Master and Savior, we will rule and reign with Him over a world that is completely just and true and righteous. Amen? And what a joy that is. That's the best way. That's the best way. But injustice isn't the only problem that Solomon saw under the sun. He also saw oppression. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. We're seeing oppression Unfold before our eyes over in Hong Kong, aren't we? You know, with all the things that are going on in Hong Kong and, and our, our hearts go out as we see those people being oppressed, but really what they're experiencing in Hong Kong is really just the tip of the iceberg compared to what's the oppression that's happening to believers throughout mainland China. I don't know if you followed the, the news of what's happening to believers in mainland China, but things seemed to be getting better for a while. But over the last several years, as that regime has been consolidating power, um, it's heartbreaking how believers are being oppressed over there. And it's not just in China. North Korea is one of the most oppressive governments in all, in all the world. In North Korea, believers are regularly tortured and imprisoned. But not just in China and North Korea. Believers are imprisoned and tortured and oppressed throughout the Middle East and in parts of Africa and really throughout the world. And it's nothing new. It's been happening forever. And believers are not the only ones that are oppressed, are they? There are folks that are oppressed all over the world. As a matter of fact, everywhere that you see power under the sun, you see oppression. And that's what Solomon saw. Solomon saw, even though he was the most powerful man in the kingdom and and probably one of the most powerful men in the world at that time, when he saw power, he saw oppression. And it broke his heart as he looked back here at the end of his life, he looked back and he saw the tears of those who had been oppressed. So what's the better idea that he came up with? Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, "...and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. (laughs) But better than both is he who has not yet been." and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. (laughs) That's the best you can come up with? That's the best that he could possibly come up with to try to dig himself up out of the bitterness is to say that you're better off dead? Once again, to quote another one of those great philosophers, Joe Diffie, I'd be better off in a pine box and a slow train bound to... Georgia or in the gray walls of a prison doing time I can keep going you want me but that's the best that he could come up with you're just better off dead or even better than that you might be better off if you'd never been born George Bailey didn't have anything on Solomon did he what a defeatist depressing solution but sadly, it's the solution that people all around us are coming up with every day, isn't it? I just read something last night. I don't know the statistics for Virginia, but this just popped up in my, in my news feed that in West Virginia, one, more than one person a day dies by suicide. And West Virginia is a small state. See, this option is what is coming to the hearts and minds of people all around us. Almost all of us in here have been impacted by the suicide of a friend or a loved one. Listen to me. Solomon's solution is not a solution at all. Whatever circumstance you might find yourself in, God has given you breath in your lungs for a reason. He has given you this heartbeat and the next heartbeat for a reason. Whether you're... Whether your suffering is unimaginable, whether your suffering is under the oppression of sickness or disease or broken relationships or even terrible abuse, whatever your situation, whatever you might be oppressed by, every heartbeat that you have is a precious gift from God. Amen? Every breath, every heartbeat is one more gracious opportunity for you to experience the victory that Jesus has over whatever oppression you have in your life. No matter what you might be going through, no matter what you might ever go through, you are not better off dead. You're you're better off being made fully alive in Jesus. He'll wipe away the tears of the oppressed. Matter of fact, He's the only one that can. He will give you comfort no matter what oppression you might be going through. Jesus in you is far greater than any oppressor in the world. He is the best way. Amen? Under the sun, the world is full of injustice and full of oppression. Solomon also saw that it's full of envy. (laughs) Look at verses 4 and 5. He said, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. That's some work ethic, isn't it? This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. You know, one of the most influential, I'm going to date myself here, but one of the most influential movies of the 80s was a movie called Wall Street. And if you ever saw that movie or if you've ever seen any clips about it, the main character, one of the main characters in it was a guy named Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko was played by Michael Douglas and when you go back and you look at the pictures and you see how young he was there and how old he is now, it makes you feel old. So don't do that, okay? <clears throat> but Michael Douglas playing Gordon Gecko, he 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 um, was trying to defend his worldview and defend his character as a as a corporate raider. And this is what he said. He said, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. And then he said, it captures greed, captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, greed for money, greed for love, greed for knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind. And that's exactly what, it's almost as if Gordon Gecko could have been modeled after what Solomon is saying right here in these couple of verses. That was exactly what Solomon was seeing as he was looking under the sun. So as he saw that, as he saw that people are motivated by their greed and by their envy, he wrongly said they that's the only thing that people are motivated for. But as he looked at that and he saw that, <laughs> he reasoned. He said, there's, there's no better way than devouring yourself in greed and envy. So he came up with verse 6. His solution in verse six is, better is a handful of quietness, which any parents in the house, you can, you can just take those words right there and, and mount them on your wall. Just, you have permission to pull that quote out of context. But realize it's out of context. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Now, that certainly seems better than his last two attempts, doesn't it? That certainly sounds better than, you know, you're better off dead. It certainly sounds better than that, but is it really? I mean, look at what he's saying. He's saying that, you know, it's just better to chill out and do nothing than it is to work. B- because really, all work is just pointless. Anyway, just like that 80's rock anthem. Everybody's just working for the weekend, right? Right? Work doesn't have a point other than just to get you to where you're not working. Work for your vacation so you can come back and work for your next long weekend so you can come back and work for your next vacation so that you can do that over and over and over again until one day you finally get to retire where you don't have to work anymore. And in the meantime, just try to do your best to mix in some yoga and mindfulness and meditation and pour a little wine on it so that you can desperately try and quiet the envy and toil and work and striving of the day. Tell me how that's working for you. It's not, is it? Back in April, the New York Times reported this new Gallup poll that showed two things. First, it showed that Americans... You know, this land of privilege and plenty that we that God has blessed us with, this poll showed that Americans are some of the most stressed and worried people in the world. That was the first thing it showed. And the second thing it showed was that American stress and worry levels have dramatically increased over the past few years. At the same time, we're taking more time off, taking more vacations, Than we ever have. How does that work out? In a world full of greed and envy, that handful of quietness that, that we keep trying to grab onto, it's not working, is it? That's because contentment doesn't come from quietness. Contentment doesn't come from endless vacations. No, true contentment only comes from having a right relationship with God through Christ. That's where contentment comes from. The problem is not that there's too much work in your life. The problem is that your source of your source of contentment is wrong. See, understanding that God is in complete control frees you to work well, no matter who around you might be doing better or worse than you are. Or no matter how you're getting recognized or how you're not getting recognized or how you're getting raises or how you're not getting raises. Trusting that God is in control of it all allows you to be content in the middle of even those circumstances. See, your contentment is not in Christ. Your content, I mean, your, <laughs> there you go, quote that. Preacher said contentment's not in Christ. No, don't quote that. Your contentment is in Christ. Your contentment is in Christ. It's not in your achievement. Your contentment is not in your advancement or your status or your recognition. see, when you really trust Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior, He is the One that is your contentment. Once again, Jesus is the best way. Under the sun, the world's full of injustice, oppression, and envy. It's also full of loneliness. Look at verses 7 and 8. Boy, he's painting just a joyful, rosy picture, isn't he? Chapter 4, starting in verse 7, says, Again, I saw the vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. It's hard to be satisfied in life when you're alone, isn't it? And I know that everybody in here has experienced loneliness at one time or another in your life. And when you're lonely, there's, it's hard to have any kind of contentment in it. I mean, who can, who can celebrate the victories with you when you're lonely? Who can help carry your burdens with you when you're lonely? <laughs> you remember who wrote this, right? He's talking about being lonely. This guy who had 700 wives and 300 concubines is talking about being lonely. And on top of 700 wives and 300 concubines, he had who knows how many children. He had a whole kingdom full of staffs and servants and workers. He was constantly receiving visits from all of these important people like the Queen of Sheba. He, was, he had all of these people surrounding him, but he was lonely. So how in the world could he be lonely in the midst of all of that? He could be lonely in the midst of all of that the same way that you can be lonely with hundreds of Facebook friends and another thousand or so Instagram and Twitter and who knows whatever other kind of followers that you can have. See, Solomon learned something that lots of people are learning today. Just because you have lots of people around you doesn't mean that you're not lonely. A February article in Psychology Today said that loneliness is the newest epidemic in America and of all people in in America it identified Gen Z. Gen Z is that newest generation, you know, we we think the millennials are the newest generation, but there's a generation that's coming up behind the millennials and whatever you want to call them, i gen or Gen Z. It identified that group of people, the people, the generation of people who were born after 1995, it identifies them as the absolute loneliest people in America. And by the way, they are by far the most connected people in America. Loneliness is a terrible plague. It's a terrible plague on our society, just as it was a terrible plague in Solomon's day. So what was his solution? Look at verses 9 through 12. His solution, he says, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls." and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. Unless, you know, um, your feet are as cold as Miranda's are. (laughs) That was out loud. I apologize. Um, and if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Once again, we come across one of these well-known little nuggets, one of these well-known little quotes from the book of Ecclesiastes. A threefold cord is not, e- is not easily or is not quickly broken. That's good advice, right? Two are better than one. That's good advice, right? But do you see what he's saying here in context? When we pull these things out like it's just an Instagram meme meme hanging out there in space, we miss the point of what he's talking about. When we see what he's talking about here in context, he's saying that the very best that we can do in this lonely world is misery loves company. That's where he's at. That's the best that he can come up with. Is hey, we're all miserable, so let's just be miserable together. See, our problem under the sun is a loneliness that none of those kinds of relationships can fulfill. None of those two are better than one, none of those, none of those will fill the void. No amount of tender swipes or snaps or needy romantic relationships can fill you because your need for relationship is so much deeper than that. The only kind of relationship that will fill you is a relationship with the God who created you in Christ. Is it good to have friends? Of course it is. This is one of those times that Solomon comes up with something that is, under the sun, is true. It's good to have friends. It's good to have relationships. But it's better to have a friend that the Bible says sticks closer than a brother. It's best to have the kind of friend who was willing to lay down his life for you and was able to take it up again. It's best to have a friend who will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the best kind of friend to have. As the old hymn says, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Now, a three uh, three, I can't even say the word, a three, uh, you Chevy fans, you keep hearing me say three Fords and you get all nervous. A threefold cord is not quickly broken but the only threefold cord that can never be broken is the threefold cord of the Trinity the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and when you have a relationship with that triune God that is a relationship that can never be broken it can never be broken not because of your strength of holding on to that relationship it can never be broken because of his strength that will hold you and never ever ever let you go See, once again, Jesus is the best way. Under the sun, the world is full of injustice, oppression, envy, and loneliness. But now it gets personal for Solomon. And you can even see it in the structure of the way that he writes and the way that he switches things up in this last section. Because it gets personal, he switches up the format. In each of these that we've looked at so far, he addresses the problem first, and then he comes up with his flawed solution after that, but now he switches it around because the problem is his own irrelevance. Can you imagine the king looking back on his life is saying that he was just irrelevant? Look at verses 13 through 16. He says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. See how he's referring to himself? Is he looking back and seeing how he wasted his life? An old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of whom he led." Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely, this also is vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon was looking back on his life as as an old man as he's reflecting back on his life. He's looking back and he's saying that this whole thing has passed me by. His whole life has passed me by. He was once the youth who had stood in King David, his daddy's place. He was once that youth. He was the mover. He was the shaker. He was the bright young innovator. And then somewhere along the way, he quit listening. Somewhere along the way, he he forgot to learn. He forgot to grow. He forgot to learn. He forgot to grow because he thought he knew it all. And after all, he was the wisest man on the face of the earth, right? Who can tell me anything? he forgot to grow he forgot he quit taking advice from people and because of that he became old and stale and irrelevant instead of investing in the next generation he spent his time complaining about the next generation notice in verse 16 he he, he refers to his leadership as a thing of the past he says those he led See, he realized he was, I mean, he was on the throne still. Nobody had taken over. Nobody had, there had been no military coup. But even as he was sitting on the throne, he realized he wasn't leading anybody. It was like he was taking a walk and he looked back over the show, over his shoulder and he realized nobody was following him. God had blessed Solomon with some of the most amazing, most unimaginable gifts that a person could could ever think to to have. God had blessed him beyond measure. He blessed him with wisdom and wealth and prosperity and productivity and health. Blessed him with all of those things. But Solomon wasted all of the good gifts that God gave him. He wasted those gifts chasing after the wind. Listen to me chasing after the wind is not the best that god has for you chasing after those things is not the best that he has for you the best that god has for you is not the stuff that you can achieve the best that god has for you is not the money that you can make the best that you can uh, the best that god has for you is not even the happiness or not even the distractions that you can chase the best that god has for you is not even your family and the worldly legacy that you can leave them Now, the best that God has for you is Himself. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says that it's God's desire that all people would be saved and would come to the knowledge of the truth. That includes you. Have you been saved? Have you been saved or have you spent your life chasing after all of these things that Solomon shows us there's no fulfillment in ultimately? Have you trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and King of your life? Have you removed yourself as Solomon was sitting on the throne and saw that there was no one over him who would not bow his knee or his heart to anyone? Are you sitting on the throne of your life refusing to bow your heart before Jesus as Lord? Or is Jesus the King of your life? See, I'm begging you not to get to a point where you look back on your life in bitter irrelevance. Don't waste your life chasing after all of these human solutions to all of these problems under the sun. No, live your life in the fullness of the best that God has for you no matter what the circumstances of life are around you. And the best that God has for you is a relationship with Himself through Christ. The best that He has for you is ultimate justice, ultimate victory over oppression, ultimate contentment and rich relationship and true relevance. It only comes from being in Christ. And all you have to do is seek Him. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to chase after. No, all you have to do is seek Him. And He's promised that when you seek Him, you'll find Him. And He's promised that when you ask Him, He'll give you. So have you asked Jesus to be your Lord this morning? If you will, He'll open your heart. And you'll find a relationship with Him that will fulfill any need that you have. So I'm asking that you do that today.